Good morning, Wisconsin. It's WTMJ Now. News, opinions, Wisconsin. Everything you need to know in the Badger State and beyond. Come give us your thoughts on the old National Bank talk and text line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now here's your hosts, Sandy Max and Steve Scafidi. And good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Wednesday edition, Hump Day, if you prefer. Annie Schwartz is our pretty regular guest on Wednesday, 9 o'clock hour, law enforcement hour, as we like to call it. Uh, welcome, Annie. You. Get your mic going there. We got your mic. You. There you go. Yeah, we do. It's, it's good. You got the big, like, the, the thing on it, which yes. I, I love that big it's a protection cover. for all of us. I think so. <laughs> Sandy Max here, of course. Um, uh, we've got some break, sort of breaking news, kind of a big announcement, but. Um, we're going to get to some serious st- stuff. There's a, a epidemic of violence against teens and young people in this country. So we're going to dig deep on that one. But um, a lot of people know you. I mean, if you're new to the show or new to Annie, she is probably one of the definitive experts on the Jeffrey Dahmer case, having covered it as a reporter, written a book with a, what do they call it, the ad- ad- uh, amended edition? Right, yeah. We did That's a, not the right word. What's updated. the right word? Updated. Yeah, it was an updated edition. Yeah. The uh, fi- a final chapter, the first book ended in 92 when he walks out the door of the courtroom and goes to prison. And then I was contacted for a 30-year update, went back and did a where are they now with all the principles from the case, and then also did... Uh, uh, you know, did a did a little bit more about what happened to Dahmer in prison. So, and I've joked on the show before when you've been on. Um, it never fails. I'm watching late night TV, and I'll flip, and there'll be a Dahmer show, and then your you, your face will will pop up because you've done so many of those programs. Yeah, it freaks Mark out too. And I always <laughs> say, what was I wearing? Because if I know what I was wearing, then I know how many pounds ago it was. So that's always uh, that's always entertaining. But interesting, interesting. more to come. Yes. Yeah, so big announcement: Fox Network, Fox Nation, Fox Nation, Fox Nation is uh, allowing us to make this announcement here uh, for the very first time. Uh, Fox Nation is going to be dropping uh, my son Jeffrey the Dahmer family tapes. Uh, that is coming up, uh, I believe they're going to do it the 25th, although there's some urgency to perhaps do it on the 18th. 25th of this month? Of September. Okay. Mm-hmm. What makes this special different than all the others? You know what, Sandy? The, uh, people say that, and they say, oh my gosh, really, more Dahmer? But I, I think this this might be the most fascinating Dahmer piece I've I've ever done, and that is because... These are tapes that Lionel Dahmer made of his jailhouse conversations with his son, Jeffrey. Nobody ever knew these existed. Uh, people knew, I, I think people assumed, you know, maybe that he had done a few things uh, as far as, uh, you know, n- noting his conversations with his son because he wrote a book about the case, right? Called, uh, I think it was My Son, uh, Father's Story. Uh, but this is, uh, apparently he had made these tapes. Then when his son was killed in prison, and this is hours and hours of tapes that Lionel made of his conversations with, with, with Jeffrey Dahmer. So we're going to get the real voices. Oh, yeah. Because uh, yeah. yeah, a lot is, of these shows, they have like, like oh, no, this, fake voices. This is no reenactment. This wow. is none of that. And when you, when you listen to him, when you listen to Dahmer, mm-hmm. you get that, that really kind of flat, you know, unaffected voice. That that he is uh, that he was so known for when people were trying to portray him in movies, but Lionel wanted to do these conversations, and I think you know it, it, everyone can have their own reason for why they think Lionel did this. Um, I think there's in some ways because a lot of the the times during the tapes, Lionel will ask um, Jeffrey Dahmer, he'll say, um, you know, was there something I missed? 
Was mm. there something I missed when you were little? Is there something I should have seen? Like when we were when we were going, you know, when we took the when you brought the roadkill home and and we looked at the animals, is there something I missed about the way that you felt about that? And it, I think in a lot of ways it's Lionel trying to figure out why he, you know, how his son became the way he did. I think Lionel Dahmer's whole life since since his son Jeffrey Dahmer became a uh, an international, uh, you know, an internationally known name has been to figure out what was his responsibility in raising a serial killer. Well, beyond that, what should we think about Lionel Dahmer? Because, you know, recording these conversations I, I, with your son, I get you're, you're writing a book, and he did write a book, and I don't know how it did or, you know, what happened with it. But it seems like you're invading the personal space of your son, who you should care about, regardless of the crimes, right? It's still your right. father's son. Mm-hmm. So what should we think about Lionel Dahmer? What did we miss? You know, Lionel Dahmer, uh, I, I don't think is going to be getting any Father of the Year awards, okay? But I, I think that when we're looking, it, it's so easy to look back at these cases. It's so easy to look back, whether it's Jeffrey Dahmer or the Gilgo Beach Killer or any of these things and say, hi, you should have seen that. Because in hindsight, we all see those things, Right. But when it comes to when it comes to Dahmer, I think that uh, Lionel Dahmer was always on the search for what was going on there. And what was kind of, you know, what was so ironic is they have a conversation together. And, and the, the, my part in this is that I listen to all the tapes and then provide commentary on it uh, with uh, with some other people who were involved in the case as well. And there's a conversation between the two of them. Where, um, you know, Lionel Dahmer, uh, asks him, he says, you know, what do you, what did you feel about, um, you know, uh, uh, what was the happiest feeling that you can remember? And then Dahmer answers him. Uh, and then he says, you know, what was your lowest moment as a kid? Lionel Dahmer was a very, very, is strict Christian the word I'm looking for? I want to say it in a way that's not pejorative so people get upset well, I mean, with me. I mean, authoritative, you know, Absolutely. that sort of a, of a father figure. His biggest fear when he was talking to his son was that when he talked to him about what kinds of things he was keeping in his room at his grandmother's house was that he was keeping a box full of porn, pornography. Little did we know what he was keeping in that box. And we, of course, find that out during the conversation. And I don't know how Lionel gets through that conversation. The two of them are very nonplussed. But I think what makes this interesting is you hear their actual voices. And it's a stilted, weird conversation. But I also imagine that this is exactly how they talked anyway. There are a couple times in the tapes when Jeffrey Dahmer says to his father, yeah, that's something we can talk about, you know, when we're not recording this, hmm. which which to me gave me sort of this little, you know, this little uh, clue that that Jeffrey Dahmer did want to have an honest to God conversation with his dad. But I don't know that either one of them was really capable of that or trusted each other or trust. Yeah, exactly. Sandy, that's the that's the that's the point. As you're preparing for this new TV special and listening I mean, what were these listening sessions like for you? How many hours at a time do you digest this? And then how do you feel afterwards? It is so strange to hear Jeffrey Dahmer speak from the grave because we have seen him portrayed. The most recent was, of course, in Ryan Murphy's Netflix piece, right? 
Um, but I have, uh, I have heard him do interviews, but I've never heard Jeffrey Dahmer really have a conversation. He did have a conversation with his lawyer, with Wendy Patrickus, when he was first arrested. And that was the subject of another documentary, a different documentary. But this is him having conversations with arguably the person who's closest to him in his life. And, and you would, you would think that maybe there'd be a little different intonation or it would be different. But hearing him speak from the grave was was very, very eerie. Annie Schwartz, our guest, as she is most Wednesdays, 9 o'clock hour. I want to take a break. I want to, I want to ask you one more thing about the Dahmer uh, Fox Nation special coming up. When was it? Late September? Uh, it's coming out either next week, Monday. It's dropping the September 18th or the 25th. They're still trying to figure out which show week they want to drop it. And it'll be dropped on the Fox Nation streaming service. So you can watch it anytime you want. You don't have to wait for it to appear on, you know, on, on television. And then one, uh, coming up in the next half hour, probably a uh, gun deaths among children and teens just exploding in this country. I want to get your thoughts on that. As we kind of explore the world of law enforcement from the old to the new and a crisis among young people in this country. Annie Schwartz, our guest. You're listening, of course, to WTMJ Now. This girl is on fire. Oh, can't get through the hour without having Annie's walk-up music. Annie Schwartz joining us, law enforcement communications expert. We're talking about the Fox Nation special that's coming up maybe as soon as next week on the Jeffrey Dahmer story. And, and this is sort of, as you said, a new twist on it with the actual recordings between Lionel Dahmer's father and Jeffrey Dahmer. So I'm going to ask you this. I get this a lot when we talk about this. And look, I'm not of this persuasion. A lot of people are fascinated by this story. Yes. But I get these texts, and I'm, so I'll ask you point blank. Can we just let this go? He's mm-hmm. dead. Move on. What's with the obsession? I was So I get that probably in every single interview that I ever do uh, on, the, on the book or on the case. It's let it go. I'm going to guess that that person who sent us that message is from Wisconsin because that's, that's where people feel that the most strongly is here. And they say, please stop talking about this. But let's look at, at what happens when there is something on the Jeffrey Dahmer case somewhere in broadcast media. It was the number one Netflix series. I mean, they had more viewers for that series than any other series ever in the history of Netflix. So there's an interest. And when there's uh, also, you know, there people are always looking for the why. And maybe we would stop thinking about Dahmer, but then we have other serial killers that come up, like the Gilgo Beach serial killer. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's talking about this again because people want to know why, right? It's like, why does this happen? What's going on there? I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was watching something over the weekend about that case. It might have been on CNN, might have been on one of the other networks. And I, you know me, I'm a fan of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But one of the criticisms of law enforcement is when they tie specific detectives or people within an organization on a series of crimes, in this case, murders, that's the only eyeballs that get a, a chance to look at this information. And in that case, a new person came in, solved it like in, in less than a year. So I think that's a valid criticism. I will say the same thing about the Ted Bundy thing. That, that got passed from state to state to state. Now, we didn't have the communication system we have now where you could talk to each other, but he escaped numerous times. I mean, there was a lot of missed missed chances there to get this guy, and frankly, would have saved a lot of lives in Florida. And people forget that part of the story, that those young women mm-hmm. that he slaughtered if law enforcement had done their job. So as, the, as a fan of law enforcement, I sometimes wonder if, if maybe sitting this case or any case, murder case especially, with one set of eyes or two set of eyes and no one else looks at it, we get situations like that case 
out east where it could have been solved and it wasn't people die. You know, that, that reminds me of something that, that actually is happening in, um, in both newsrooms and in policing, and that's the idea of having beats, right? The idea in a newsroom is that you have somebody on the police beat, they cover the, the police beat, they cover the courthouse, they know everybody, they have all the sources, but does that lean, does that, does that lead to kind of a myopic view then of what you're looking at? Nobody comes in and looks at it with, with fresh eyes. Uh, you see that also in policing when, uh, you have officers that have a beat area and they say they get so used to that kind of, uh, to that atmosphere that they're not cross training anymore. They're not looking at, you know, at, they're seeing things on a daily basis and then they become, you know, used to them instead of saying, wait a minute, that's not okay. Now, I don't know that I, that I believe that because I was one of those people that had a beat. My whole career as a reporter, I covered crime and the courts. All I ever covered. Certainly familiarity can make you better at your job. Absolutely. I'm not saying that. I'm, and I'm the last person to criticize law enforcement. They have mm-hmm. some of the toughest jobs in yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, the benefit of that is that depth of knowledge sure. and being able to identify specific relationships because of that knowledge. But this recent uh, set of murders out east, I think that's an example. That fresh set of eyes, they nailed this thing within like a, a year. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that law enforcement, again, I'm not an expert, should think about when they, they saddle one group of people on a case and they, no one ever else looks at it well and it seems counterintuitive you know the new person comes in and says okay you've got the task force we're switching out the task force all new members on the task force and people would say wait a minute no but joe and and ed know everything about there is to know about this case yeah well you know maybe it's time for that for that fresh look at the at the case i've seen i've seen cases like this solved Years and years at the at the Milwaukee Police Department in the same uh, the same vein. We got to take a break here. We're running a little bit late, but we'll catch up. Annie Schwartz, our guest after the break. This epidemic of of young people being killed in this country. We'll explore that and more with Annie Schwartz. You're listening, of course, to WTMJ now. Our guest in studio, Stephen Sandy, WTMJ now is Annie Schwartz, law enforcement communications expert. So the headline is. Not surprising, but it's stunning regardless. Uh, firearms killed a record number of children in 2021. Anybody who pays attention to the news locally, nationally, this story is, you know, it, it's tied to gun violence. It's tied to improper storage of firearms in homes, access the kids have to weapons they shouldn't ever have. You know, certainly the Second Amendment arguments playing to that. I've, I've had long debates with people on, on my old show about, don't tell me how I can store my guns. I'm going to store them loaded, and you're not going to change my mind. I'm not going to put a gun lock on it. I get all that. But as I deal with any problem from a perspective of a former leader or as a radio host, all I care about is fixing things. And, and I guess the problem easily defined is I don't want young people, teens, children, anyone really being killed by guns for no reason. So as somebody who looks at communication in law enforcement, when you see stories like this, what are we all missing here? Are we are we actively, actively, and actually looking for solutions, or we just want to argue about these things? You know, when I watch the media coverage of of the shootings that involve children, I think the most recent one that I can think of wasn't. Did we have a two year old very recently? I was speaking at a conference out west, but I think there was a two year old that somehow shot themselves or or was shot by a, a sibling. Um, you know. What is the when media are telling those stories, I I think it's important for us to tell the whole story. 
here's what happened. Yeah, the two-year-old, there was an unsecured weapon in the house, and the two-year-old, you know, shot himself. Let's let's go more. Let's tell more. Let's let's talk about that story because again, you you, you can't blame guns. The guns aren't shooting anybody. People have them. Children, you know, find them in an unsecured location, and they uh, and 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 their curiosity gets the best of them. I don't uh, I don't know what to say about the fact that kids uh, are 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 curious, and the fact that you have a loaded gun in your home that's not secured, and you say, "Look, it doesn't keep me safe to have a load uh, to have a handgun that's that's secured in my house because." I need to be able to, to, to grab that and defend my family if something happens. So You can still secure a weapon and still have that instant ability to react. Absolutely. Because nobody's coming into your home and being on top of you in like five seconds. But maybe we talk about that. Maybe that's a part of the news stories then, that the next time we're doing that story, we say, okay, here's what happened here. Let's talk a little bit about what uh, about what was going on. And we've got a, we've got a two-year-old who's raised around a culture of firearms, uh, and, uh, you know, what, what should we, what, what can we do? What should we do? What kind of conversations should be happening? Um, uh, Sandy, you and I were talking about, um, Project Ujima at, at Children's Hospital, mm-hmm. which is, is, con- uh, their concern. And they have been around as long as I can remember when I started in policing here in 1987. They've been around a long time talking about, Gun violence in children and, and how, to, have, how to reduce it. Yeah. yeah, it's a project between Children's Wisconsin and the Medical College of Wisconsin. And when we we're talking about these U.S. statistics, my immediately went, well, how do we compare here in Wisconsin? And according to Project Ujima, in 2018, 55 gun related injuries to children. And in 2022, that increased to 137. And so far in 2023, 82 gun related injuries to children reported so far. And the number of children killed by gunfire in the U.S. increased 50% between 2019 and 2021. Here's another number. I mean, that's startling on its own. 80% of gun deaths, males 19 or younger in this country. Mm -hmm. Wow. Those are all young people who have lives, families, create things, create businesses. Black male children more likely to die from homicide. White males 19 and younger in that group likely to kill themselves with guns. I understand we're not going to solve the problem, but I get so upset with the folks who simply just by the way they approach this like eh, it's it's an inner city problem it's not my problem it's not in my family till it is mm-hmm. that we accept status quo and we allow kids to be killed 80 percent of gun deaths 19 or younger that's ridiculous in a civilized country which i think we are and annie to your point of going deeper in reporting and hopefully enlightening people, for example, if the whole goal to have a gun in your home is to protect your family, then having the safety on and having that gun not available to little hands that can reach high or just play with this, you know, that's counterproductive if you're not putting the safety on, if you're not locking it away and getting it when you feel there is an actual threat to your family in your home. Mm-hmm. You think about it, we, we pay more attention to those uh, counter locks, you know, from kids trying to get underneath the sink. Oh, yeah, God forbid they should get the T-Fell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or the uh, the Comets or whatever, mm-hmm. the Ajax. It's like, we're worried more about that than the actual guns, which can kill people. And in, a, in this country, 80%, 19 or younger, are young people being killed by guns. And I'm also not a fan of legislating this. I don't know that this is something, and I don't want to get out of my lane here, but I don't know that legislation is the way to, is, is the way to go here. 
um, I, I, you know, the, a lot of people who speak m- much more eloquently than I do about the issue of children and gun violence talk about, you know, legislation involving guns. And I'm just, you know, I'm I, now, look, first of all, I'm nobody's mother. Okay, it's important for me to mention I'm nobody's mom. So, uh, you know, my my view is of uh, of a childless person. But man, I I just I take a look at the um, at the when we're talking about what are we what about school based school based mental health care to school based trauma care? What are we do we have to put more of a burden on our schools than they already have in order to teach children about these kinds of, of issues. And I don't know the answer to that. I throw that out there as a topic for discussion and not as something that I recommend. But I got to tell you, I mean, I you know, we do we not have to have these conversations in, in our schools and do we not have to have them earlier than we ever thought we had to have them, you know, before? That's a great point because maybe it's not just about having you know, mass shooting training, you know, and, and you know, sounding yeah, like run, hide, fight. Yeah. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's recognizing the danger of a gun in a household coming upon it as a kindergartner or a one year old, you know, as simple as putting an X through the picture of a gun and saying that's not something you should pick up. That simple mental image might prevent a child from either harming themselves or another one of their siblings or a friend unnecessarily. I mean, it's so Communication is a big part of this, and maybe the, the training part is something that we're missing. Maybe it's not just about the mass shooting stuff, which gets all the attention. Mm-hmm. She's Andy Schwartz, Sandy, Steve, WTMG. Now we'll continue the conversation. If you have a question or comments, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talking text line. Back after this. Andy Schwartz, our guest in the studio, Sandy and Steve, WTMJ Now. Uh, and and I, I think we all realize this problem of gun violence is complex and you know whether you're talking about red flag laws legislation more responsible gun ownership second amendment education education communication in many ways we're, we're failing miserably even though we're trying i think some people are trying to improve one's chances of not being killed by a gun in school or at the place of worship that you attend or in a supermarket i mean it, my biggest frustration, I'm, we're going to pivot in a second here, but my biggest frustration is we we just literally accept these things. And and they have a process, right? I, I went through one of these. So you have the, the shock and outrage. Then the response part comes. You grieve together as a community. You figure out what your response is. You try to work together. You have these big conversations, these panels, these you know network programs, local TV done done all of that stuff. Walked you know went around the country talking about mass shootings from a leadership perspective. Policy manuals are put together by the Department of Justice and other agencies to say here's what le- local leadership should be doing in these. Bottom line is, when somebody asked me this question ten plus years ago, I didn't think the problem would be worse, but it is, and I can't wrap my head around that because you would think typically with any problem. And this is for Sandy or, or Annie. You think with with awareness of something, recognition of a problem that we have put smart minds together and figured it out. We're we're going in the opposite direction. That's my frustration. Mm-hmm. Or is it uh, we we know community activists? We've we some of them are our teammates, and it seems like there are people who are individuals trying to do a lot, and trying to get people to work together to try and change that would be more effective. But right now we have some passionate people trying to do a lot. 
You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give some props here to uh, to what I'm seeing at the Milwaukee Police Department lately because what I'm seeing is I'm seeing them getting out there more. I'm seeing them have more uh, community engagement. I'm seeing them do things like the camera networks. I think we talked about that on on one of our past shows where we talked about the fact that you can hook your camera network, your ring camera, whatever it is, into you know, into the uh, into the network that the police are monitoring. Right, right. So, you know, I, I think more tools that that law enforcement can give us to say you don't have to sit there and 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 feel like this is all something that's just happening to you. There are some ways that you can that you can take control. Community involvement. Community involvement. You, you were at an event Saturday in Kenosha. Yeah, Tell us about I, it. this was a this was kind of an a uh, I, I was. I love going to events outside of the places that I usually go. So I'm in Kenosha, and the Kenosha Police Department has launched, uh, Saturday was their launch of their community engagement team. And I thought this was, this was a great event. So they have this giant car show down there. But in addition to the, to the car show, they also have all their vehicles down there. You've seen this at a lot of different community events where the police bring out their cars. But, the, the Kenosha Police Department is really, you know, they have, listen, it's not a secret that they have suffered since the Jacob Blake case. And they are doing everything that they can to try to get out there and say, you know what, we want to talk to the community. Talk to us. Don't just, you know, don't just say, uh, you know, ah, they're not going to, nothing's going to ever change. Everything's always going to be the same. Uh, they now have a drone program. Uh, they're doing their first training on on officers with drones, which helped them. Uh, find uh, missing children, which help them in SWAT situations, uh, in closed space, um, uh, close quarters combat. Um, you know, I, to me, I'm watching police departments all over our state and all over the country, really, just from the, the conversations I'm having, who are saying, we got to get closer to people, not farther away. We got to get closer. And I, I, I really, I was a great, it was a, a great thing to see on Saturday, to see all of the kids and all of the parents that brought them up and said, meet this nice officer, tell them what you do. And then they showed them the drone or they gave them, you know, some some little, you know, gave them them teddy bears and things. And I'm just I'm picturing, you know, I'm picturing the people who are the, the usual suspects, right, who are listening. And they say, oh, yeah, that's it. It's a teddy bear. Right. That'll do it. But, you know, it, I think that law enforcement is really struggling and trying to figure out how to get closer to their communities. And trust and relationships take time to build. Mm -hmm. It it isn't whoever's cynical and going, yes, it's a teddy bear. That isn't Mm -hmm. going to change the world overnight. But that trust and that relationship and seeing that person going, ah, okay, they are here to protect and serve, Mm -hmm. not just apprehend. Mm -hmm. There's there's been a... uh kind of a a comeback of sorts. We know that post-George Floyd, the relationship between police and community suffered. And there was, you know, mass protests, riots, you know, all kinds of things happened. Bad things happened. And uh, calls for defunding the police. Well, thankfully, those calls were mostly ignored. Not everywhere. And then the places that actually did some of that are actually reversing the course now and Mm -hmm. realizing maybe law enforcement's important. They sure are. which, Which I would have told them a long time ago if they would just ask me. But is this, these types of programs, that is a response to that falling out. I would argue that it's a, it's a, it's the right response. If we're perceived, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in the shoes of law, if we're perceived as not listening, if we're perceived as not doing the right thing, I think going out in the community in whatever fashion that is, and I've seen a lot of great things done locally here in Milwaukee and, and other places where you're interacting with, 
people of color, in their neighborhoods, in their own environments, in, in mass gatherings, and you do it safely and, you're, and you make it an educational tool, a relationship tool, I think that's a great example of how George Floyd could actually work to the benefit of policing. Is that, is that, is that going too far, do you think? I don't think it's going too far. I mean, the George Floyd case is a tragedy all the way around. And what I think it did is it made us have it forced some conversations in law enforcement to say, how can we do things a little bit differently? Unfortunately, what happened in a whole lot of communities is they went way overboard, right? They just went they they went way overboard when it came to uh, when it came to policing. They said, OK, no more police responding to domestic violence calls. We'll send social workers. All right. So somewhere between the thing where you don't send police anymore and the thing where, you know, the police, you know, repel down the side of your house and come in through the picture window, there is the right way to do policing. Right, right. And George Floyd, I think what, what, what George Floyd did was it said, let's think broader about policing. Let's think broader about what we do in our communities. I, uh, I have seen a lot of departments try to, try to come out of very challenging times post George Floyd and say, what are we going to do? And I got to give a shout out to Chief Pat Patton down at Kenosha, who is saying, you know what? We've got to do things differently here. And we are doing things differently here. This community engagement team that is out there that looks like the community that's out there talking with young people. We're not, you know, I, I don't know how much building relationship building we're doing anymore between kids and the police. I know that, you know, MPS couldn't get the police out of there fast enough. Well, now they're back. Mm -hmm. So let's let's try. It to took legislation to make that happen. Of course it did. Mm -hmm. Of course it did. Because, you know, it was like, no, we don't want stormtroopers at the school. And it's like, wow, that's a you know pretty narrow view of what having police in school means. Yeah, the other part that, that doesn't get mentioned enough is and you know, I've heard that they're not us, you know, when they, when you refer to the police as, as some separate thing. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, in many cities around this around this country, they they look like the population they serve. That didn't used to be the case. That is a a policy and a practice that law enforcement did on its own. Some of it by necessity because they need police officers, but they changed the demographic makeup of their departments. And that doesn't even seem to have a a positive effect yet. Now, maybe it will in the future. They were going in that direction when George Floyd happened. Then post George Floyd, one of the one of the fallouts from that case is that we have seen people say, be a police officer, not my career choice. I'm not doing that. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be, you know, I don't I don't want, you know, to be judged in that way every single day when I'm just doing the thing I was trained to do. And now all of a sudden people on the radio, the TV or the newspaper are talking about what I did. Uh, also, it's just not seen as a it's not seen as a, a, a career path by enough enough young people. And I think that's another one of the positives of seeing police get into the community and talk to kids it's to meeting somebody like Chief, like Chief Pat Patton in Kenosha and saying, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. That's a, what he told me about being a police officer. I like that. It's amazing because when you meet these people, and I've had many of them in studio from, for, from Salute to Service to all the other things that we've had them in for, it's, it's once you talk to the person, whether it's a chief or a, a sergeant or detective or just a, you know, somebody, a plainclothes officer, whatever it is, they, they tell stories about the relationships it's one of the primary focuses of Salute the Service, giving the name, rank, department a face, a public face, telling their stories in depth. That's one of the fascinations I have. And, and I think taking that model 
of knowing these people that, that are actually protecting and serving in your community is so important. So shout out to those folks in Kenosha. That, that is a job well done. Absolutely. And I'm, I, and I'm who is the chief? very happy. Uh, Pat Patton. Pat chief Patton. Pat Patton is doing a Patrick Patton is doing a great job down there. He's uh, still pretty new. I think he's been there a little I think he's been there a little over a year. I mean, Pretty impressive three, to do that in a year. Yeah, they had three police chiefs inside of a very short amount of time. I think since uh, since Jacob Blake, they've had three different police chiefs. He's the third. But he's really, he's making a difference down there. And I am, I'm optimistic about what's happening down there. And in other police departments, we just got to figure our way. We've got to figure our way, and it's not necessarily going to look like something that comes out in one of those policing journals that says, this is the new cool thing, send social workers to you know these calls. I, I think that it comes with looking at your own community and saying, all right, here's what we need to do here. And what a morale boost for those Kenosha officers, high-fiving kids. and Oh, just, yeah. Because policing is a difficult job, period. Mm-hmm. You never know what kind of day you're going to have, and some of those days you are really making a positive impact and a positive difference for somebody because you're helping them in some way get off the side of the road. But there I see a lot of uh, crisis. So to be able to visit with people and have them go, hey, high five, cool, what you do, tell me more. Mm-hmm. That's good. Tell me more is, is, what we, is what we need to have happen. And, and I'd like to see, you know, look, parents, if, this childless Annie Schwartz is talking to you, right? <laughs> um, but parents, when you, you, you run into the police officers when you have your kids with you, don't say behave or this officer is going to arrest you and take you to jail. Not helpful. Not helpful for, you know, for the profession. Talk, you know, have a conversation. What, what are you, what did you do today, officer? What are you doing today? Uh, and I, I'm a, I'm a, I think policing is changing. This is a sea change. This is a, a an, an enormous aircraft carrier that's got a turnaround, but I'm seeing it move. Real quick before the break, and we're going to wrap it up after the break with Annie Schwartz, our guest, uh, a regular feature at nine o'clock hour on Wednesdays. Um, do you get the sense that, like Kenosha, that story you just put forward, are we seeing that in Milwaukee? Are we seeing those same steps being taken? I think we are. I think we're hearing them happen little by little. But I think we also have to tell people that there. I, I understand that Milwaukee is the you know is the is the big police department. It's the largest department in the state. But let's also go out to the communities and tell people what's happening out there. Uh, but yes, I am seeing uh, Chief Norman. Try to figure out, like, what? Do we, okay, what's the next thing we can do? I love the camera story. I thought that camera story was brilliant. And I, I can't wait to see what else. He is a very community-focused chief. I want to see what else he's he's got in store. Annie, Sandy, Steve, we'll wrap it up with Annie after this on WTMJ. I'm Sandy Max with Steve Scafidi, WTMJ. Now it is the Law Enforcement Hour every Wednesday at 9 with... Law enforcement expert Annie Schwartz. And Annie, you've got big adventures ahead. I am a girl who likes an adventure. Uh, <laughs> and a passport. And a passport. Um, I have to get my passport renewed, and I'm terrified they're going to take my passport away from me to get the new book because I won all the stamps all from cool all the stamps. countries. You'll get it back. You'll get it back. I think that's Where's the next out. adventure? Next adventure is to Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, I am leaving next week for Auckland, New Zealand, uh, going to the International Association of Women Police. Uh, it is women police from all over the world. And I'm going to be going there to present on a project that I just did in Albania where I help them build a public information operation for their prosecutors. But I also help the women police there create the very first 
Women's Police Association in the in, in the Albanian State Police. Mm. You know, we we think of of those things. We we take so many things for granted, like maternity leave, um, like getting to do light duty uh, in certain cases. And there is so much to be done when it comes to women and law enforcement around uh, around the world. And I'm so proud to be part of that effort in partnership with the U.S. Department of Justice and uh, the U.S. Department of State. You're making a difference. Very interesting. Safe travels to you. Who knew this this late in life? Uh, it's called wisdom and experience, and I'm glad uh, they value it. That's wonderful. So safe <laughs> travels. But I do want to ask you, Steve and I have been talking about it's National Read-A-Book Day. We certainly hope so. I want to ask you, an author, what was one of your favorite childhood books? Oh, it's a tie. Eloise, absolutely. Because oh. I think we can all agree I am Eloise, living at the Plaza Hotel and <laughs> sure. causing havoc. Dressing well. <laughs> Dressing well. But also there was a book that I read when I was a kid called Busy, Busy World. And I don't even know if it's still around. But what it did is you got to go through the book and it showed you all the different countries and what was happening in different countries. It, it's a kid book. You know, I think I was like, you know, five or six or something. And uh, I always loved to read. That's an only child thing, by the way, because you create that whole world for yourself through books when you're an only child and you make up, you know, weird stuff in your head. Uh, but uh, but I, I think that's what gave me my interest in foreign travel, even that little. All right, we got to leave it there. We got to get to the top of the hour news. We'll see you in a couple weeks or three weeks. I said maybe I can call in from there. It's 16, 17 hours ahead, and I think it's like next week there today. I don't <laughs> right. know. You can see the future. John Oliver, next week tomorrow. You'll come back with an interesting <laughs> Kiwi accent. All right, start thinking of those questions. A special early edition since we're out of the out of the studio at eleven today for early Brewers game against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Ask us anything. 